Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 3rd, 2023. We just did an interesting show on George Orwell and uh, some of his feminist critics. I entitled the show Orwell and His Women, and we are going to be talking women again today. Uh, not about George Orwell, but about America. Bigger subject, more women. Uh, we have been doing a series in partnership with C-SPAN on books that shaped America. C-SPAN are running a wonderful series on the 10 books that most shaped America. We're on to book seven, and astonishingly enough, the first six, Thomas Paine, Federalist Papers, uh, Lewis and Clark, uh, Frederick Douglass, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Mark Twain were all written by men. So of these 10 books, we had to get to number seven, to My Antonia by Will, Willa Cather, to get to a book that has influenced America by a woman. Peter Slen at C-SPAN, uh, my old friend there, executive producer of the show, um, did the show this week on uh, Willa Cather's uh, My Antonia. Uh, Peter, why did it take you so long to get to a book by a woman? Well, remember, Andrew, we took this list from the Library of Congress's 100 Books That Shaped America. And when you look at their list, the women don't really start appearing until Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, 1852 or so. And there's another book on here by a woman, Amelia Simmons, American Cookery, which was really a little bit out of our wheelhouse. Uh, um, Louisa May Alcott's on here in the early days. So there weren't that many women, Emily Dickinson, and we're doing, we did Willa Cather last week. She wrote My Antonia in 1918. And we're doing, coming up, Zora Neale Hurston, who wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God. Right. I don't want to get ahead, but uh, yeah. My Antonia. Uh, I mean, no, it was a, it was something it a that we, question we to ask why it took you so long. I mean, to get to My Antonia. Again, we took this from the LOC's, the Library of Congress's list of 100. And instead of just picking one era, we made sure that we were being a little structured. We took it in 50-year chunks. So 1750 to 1800, 1800 to 1850, etc. And we picked two books from each of those eras so that we were more representational of the 300 or so years that um, we're working with. And in the early going, there weren't many women. So that's one of the reasons. Well, I forgive you, Peter. Well, I'm not thank sure. you. I appreciate that. I'm not sure how much my forgiveness. Harriet Beecher Stowe has been featured many times on Book TV and on C-SPAN. Um, so we wanted to try something just a little bit different. Willa Cather has been featured as well. But this was a, a specific look at my Antonia. So... My Antonia by Willa Cather. Uh, I mean, she's obviously a woman, that goes without saying. Um, very distinguished woman, very brilliant writer. Should we approach this book um, as a book by a woman, or could it have been just as easily written by a man? Oh. 
you know, it's done in a man's voice. It's narrated by Jim, who is a New York lawyer, um, and it's his recollections. So it is done in a man's voice. So could this book have been written by a man? I think so. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. What's it about? Tell us about the book, My, My Antonia. Uh, a lot of people love this book, think it's one of the great American books. Clearly it is. I mean, it's included in your 10 books that shaped America. Yeah. Um, this book is about the immigrant experience. This is about uh, a family that moves to Nebraska and settles and uses the Homestead Act to get some, some land and eventually lives out their American dream. There are some dark features to this. Jim and Antonia, Antonia is a neighbor, are friends. They lose track of each other, split up, and then come together one more time. But um, he was, Jim, the, the narrator, was so impressed with Antonia um, and her work that that's why it's about her and her living her American dream as an immigrant from Bohemia. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting book. If, 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 I, if I will be honest. Any of the previous books, it might be the history of the expedition under the command of Captain Lewis and Clark. It's, it's a Western book, isn't it? It is. It is a go West book. It's about the immigrant experience more than it is about women's issues. Uh, it's about the Homestead Act. It's about the settling of middle America or at that time, Western America. Um, so that's kind of the theme. And this is why I'm saying that it could have been written by a man because it doesn't deal deeply with women's issues, but it does deal quite deeply with the immigrant experience and Antonia living out her American dream. Remind us, Peter, what the Homestead Homestead Act was um, and its in, place in the narrative and indeed in the history of, of turn of the century America. Yeah, in 1862, the Homestead Act was passed and it gave somebody a hundred acres, I believe it was, who would stay and farm or improve that land for five years. Therefore, you were given a hundred acres. Now, whose land was that to begin with? Well, there were Native Americans out there, and those aren't dealt with terribly deftly in my Antonia either. But about four million homesteaders settled in 30 states, 250, 270 million acres were distributed this way. And this was how policymakers in Washington settled the West with, you know, European immigrants. It's an astonishing story. And to me, as a, an immigrant myself, um, I don't see it now in the West. Did the Great Depression destroy the, the America of the Homestead Act? Or can you still see it in the America of the 2020s? And, and see what exactly, Andrew? See lots of small farms. Yeah, not so much, no. Um, I will tell you the smaller farms and 100 acres would 
frankly, would barely support a family today. I have a cousin in Iowa with a relatively large farm and, you know, he's, he works very, very hard and, you know, he, he's keeps his head above water and, but it takes a lot of acreage, a lot of farms. The smaller ones today are in the Midwest. And when I'm saying smaller, I'm saying a thousand acres. And now I did not grow up on a farm, so I can't speak generally to it, but hundred acres, you're going to have a little bit of trouble supporting a family. You're going to buy your neighbors or you're going to lease out your land. And so somebody is, is uh, combining farms to get the larger size. But back then, 100 acres would definitely support a family and give you a little extra income. Well, okay, if you just got a, a, her own statue um, at the U.S. Capitol, she's considered one of the great American writers. What is it about this book that makes it so powerful? Is it the quality of the writing? A lot of critics simply think it's a masterpiece for the for the writing itself. Yeah, and and uh, Willa Cather, at the end of her life, it said that she said that it was her favorite book of all time, and it didn't win the Pulitzer. Willa Cather won the Pulitzer for a different book. Um, I, I will be honest with you. This book was not on my top 10 list. Um, I read it. It's certainly readable. And I think for the time it was written, 1918, it was a window into what had happened in the country in the past 30 years. And I think that's why it had such a big impact. But yes, there are people out there. There is a Willa Cather State Park and and uh, Willa Cather Papers at the University of Nebraska. And there are people who are devoted as much as there are people devoted to Mark Twain. They are devoted to Willa Cather. Where do we need to, we need to look on this book, um, Peter, to find its real resonance? There was an interesting op-ed, I'm not sure if you saw it, a few years ago by Brett Stevens in the New York Times, a rather controversial conservative writer who was also a great critic or remains a great critic of Donald Trump. And he sees uh, Willa Caver and my Antonia as what he calls the perfect antidote to Donald Trump's nativism and hosti hostility towards immigrants. It, that's interesting. I did not read Brett Stevens op-ed in the New York Times. Of course, he was with the Wall Street Journal for years prior to that. Um, I did not read that, but I could see the nativist instinct and, or the anti-nativist instinct being worked in this book a little bit. Um, for the most part, the immigrants seem welcomed into Nebraska. Um, there were enclaves. There was a black enclave in in uh, Nebraska. They weren't terribly welcome. And then when you got to the Bohemians, the Czechs and some of the Eastern Europeans, the Slavs, it was not as welcomed as the Northern Europeans were. So I'm not sure, I would like to read Brett Stevens' op-ed before I comment on it, but 
Um, just that general statement that you made, it sounds a little bit, a little strong to me. Well, let me quote one, his conclusion. Um, he says, uh, my Antonia becomes an education in what it means to be American, to have come from somewhere else with very little, to be mindful on every trapping of prosperity of how little we once had and were, to protect and nurture those newly arrived wherever from as if they were our own immigrant ancestors, equally scared, equally humble and equally determined. Is that fair? Yes, yes, she does. There is a celebration of that. Antonia ends up with, I believe, 11 children and a farm of her own. Therefore, she achieved her American dream. And that, I think, maybe that's what, what Brett was going for in that op-ed. Is, you mentioned the American dream. We've done some shows on Keen On recently about the death of the American dream. This is, in a way, a book about the American dream, isn't it? It is. I agree with you completely on that one. Um, immigrant comes to America, works hard, achieves. No problems with that? I mean, you don't sound entirely convinced. What do you mean problems? Well, problems with that interpretation. Um, you you mentioned, the for example, the, the black enclave. Uh, I had Margot right. Jefferson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. She's a very distinguished African-American critic, writer. She's won the Pulitzer Prize. She had a new book out a couple of years ago, her autobiography, Constructing a Nervous System. And as it happened, she really, for some reason or other, went after Willa Cather in her book, suggesting that she sort of somehow epitomizes the white female writer. Is there something very white you, about this writing. Andrew, can you read that out loud? I'll read what she said. And this right. is a, a piece on the post interpreting uh, Jefferson. Um, novelist Willa Cather is a good example. Jefferson invokes her several times. Once as she re recollects a visit to the Art Institute of Chicago with a friend during the 70s, um, the, the, the uh, when they go with a where they gazed upon Jules Breton's painting, The Song of the Lark. The purpose of the story is both to share a revelation that emerged as Jefferson and her friend talked about the art and note and to note that the painting gave Cather the title of her third novel. Jefferson reveres Cather's wisdom and loves Song of the Lark, the tale of young Thayer Cronenberg. Uh, but later, Jefferson returns to Cather to note the complex problem of loving her i guess loving her as a as an african-american uh is there something white very white about this book well like i said we learned in the program that we had that the black enclave that settled in nebraska was ostracized in a way it was you know it was the black enclave. It was not integrated into the larger white society, I guess. Um, that and the fact that the land from the from the uh, Homestead Act was taken basically from Native Americans was not dealt with deftly in the book either, I don't think. And so 
a hundred years later, we can say, hey, she should have addressed these issues. At the time, I think she reflected her times. Yeah, and, and these criticisms are obviously always very easy uh, uh, in retrospect. I, I guess for, for Jefferson, and I'm, I, didn't, I didn't bring her up because she was on the show last year and it triggered something that I remember talking to her about. There's a certain disappointment, I guess, that a woman of a, I don't think she would be as disappointed if if Kayla was a male writer. So maybe she's being fair, maybe she's not. Maybe, and, and this comes back to my original question about the fact that this book could have just as equally been written by a man. Yeah. Our guest, Melissa Homestead, is the co-editor of the, the Cather, Cather Papers. She's written a bit, book about Willa Cather and her domestic partner, Edith Lewis. Uh, she teaches English. She's taught this book many for many, many years. Um, one of the things about Willa Cather is that you're told that she's conservative politically. And so this might be a disappointment for that author, the nervous system author that you were just referencing. Margot Jefferson. Thank you. Um, but, I, you know, with, and I apologize, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah, I'm sorry at you. You don't need to apologize, Peter. I'm yeah. just chucking stuff at you here. I'm just surmising. I'm just surmising. She might have been disappointed in that, that a woman wrote this and did not take on the women's issues that she found important. Would it be fair to say that you you perhaps aren't quite as enthusiastic about this book as some of the others you've covered in this series? My, uh, my brain is wired for nonfiction. My brain is wired for the Federalist Papers. And when it comes to fiction, Huckleberry Finn, my Antonia, their eyes were watching God. I struggle a bit because I'm always trying to put everything in a category. Okay, okay. What does this mean? What issue are we talking about here? What was the country like in 1880? And so sometimes I ruin the story because I'm trying too hard instead of just reading the story. And so I'll apologize to any viewers who see it. And it was a great show. And we got good comments about it. The oh, guests. I'm sure you did. No, no, it's not a critical. It's just some, something I sensed. And a lot of people love the book. Um, oh, uh, trust we had so many series saying that she was the first great American novelist to make the West the real West, not the stuff of yeah. fiction, her theme. Um, and they go on to suggest that uh, another writer suggests that she nailed the immigrant ideal. I guess this comes back to Brett Stevens. It, is that yeah. fair, Peter? I mean, you're looking for non-fictional themes. Yes. And that was a theme that I really picked up on was the immigrant experience and the American dream. What was the American dream back in the 1880s? Go west, have a farm, work hard, succeed, have a family. Um, and I realize that's terribly simplistic, 
But Antonia achieved that dream. She achieved that dream. Today, the issue of the American dream and the ideal of the America as a melting pot is very controversial. Does this come out in the narrative? Does she come over as an immigrant and then go through the, the sausage-making machine of America to come out the other end <laughs> a, uh, an American? Well, tell you what, I'll answer in just a second. But, Andrew, did you go through the sausage-making machine when you came over? I tried, but I got rejected. <laughs> they wouldn't have me. They said I was too obnoxious. <laughs> Um, I would say that that is a very quick and abrupt way of describing this book, yes. And what was the difference between the Antonia who went in and the Antonia who came out? I don't think there was a difference in Antonia. I think she was determined throughout the whole book. And what she did was it was almost as if she had her sight set across the horizon and she was going to get over that horizon at some point. And she did. And that is, is, is simple. And again, why didn't I just, you asked me that darn question earlier and I wish I would have just read the book for enjoyment. Well, you know, in, in future, uh, Peter, uh, immigration, uh, as Brett Stevens and everybody else knows, is enormously controversial. Donald Trump made it controversial. Joe Biden makes it controversial. Uh, it's very, very controversial in terms of immigration. Do you think reading this book for kids now in school would make them more or less sympathetic to uh, the thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, particularly from Central America, that want to come to America? and many yeah. of whom are undocumented now in this country. Well, in the 1880s, in that era, about 12 million immigrants came over. So it really popped up our population. And this is when the Southern Europeans and the Bohemians, as they called them, were coming in along with the Northern Europeans. So they were a little, they were controversial. Uh, so it is similar to what we're experiencing today. If this book were taught in school today, I, uh, yes. It probably is. I'm guessing it's on a number of curriculums. It it's probably it relatively is. uncontroversial. And we had lots of teachers calling in, talking about how they taught it or read it. And, and uh, it does talk about the immigrant experience. It talks about the go west experience. That isn't so much relatable necessarily today. What is relatable in that go west experience is look ahead, look over the horizon, achieve. You can do it. The system is set up for you. So in that Going back to your original question, Andrew, I do think that there is a a pro-immigrant, pro-American message in this book. This is the seventh book in the series. Uh, next week, you move on to Zora Neale Hurston's uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, then 
to Milton and Rose Friedman's autobiography or Free to Choose free, and then Free to Choose. Right. And then Cesar Chavez's book, The Words of Cesar Chavez on Industrial Organization and Unions. So I guess it's farm workers as well. Is this the last time, Peter, that we see a rural America? Is this the last gasp of a, a rural America that's about to be profoundly transformed, reinvented as um, urban industrial America? No, no. Um, Andrew, I, I believe you you live in L.A. I live in Washington, but I grew San up in Francisco. Indiana. San Francisco. I grew up in Indiana, and I grew up in a city there. But the surrounding area was dependent on agriculture. We had a huge, we have a huge Amish population there, that still without cars, still without electricity, uh, still using their horses extensively in their farming. Um, very successful community. So I know what the rural community is like. And I, like I said, I have cousins in Iowa, Minnesota. So I am very familiar with rural America. Of course, it's changing. It changed in the 19, in the 19 aughts when young men went off to war. and They were like, wow. It changed during the Great Migration that Isabel Wilkerson writes about in her book, um, talking about African-Americans going north from the farms in the South up to the industrialized North. But even though we don't necessarily have <clears throat> family farms with 50 acres each, 50 acres each, you do still have a large prosperous rural community. And as we discussed last week, Andrew, there's never been a time in this country when things were the good old days or things were settled. And this country is continually evolving. There is no such thing as a period of, oh, you know, this was, this was such a great period in our lives. Well, every period is a great period. Every period is a bad period. Go back to the 50s supposedly this great economic boom and America's on top and we're number one. However, we're dealing with civil rights big time. And we're dealing still with the remnants of Jim Crow. And there are all sorts of underlying issues there. There are always underlying issues. This country is continually evolving. And that's, that's where, that's what you got to, I got to wrap my brain around this is that Willa Cather took a snapshot in her book and Huckleberry Finn is a snapshot and Zora Neale Hurston is a snapshot from 1937. And so I, I got to keep remembering that, that, Oh, it was just so wonderful back then or, Oh, it was so terrible back then. Final question, Peter. Um, in an America today, in the 2020s, where one of the one of the, the more problematic cleavages is the cultural, political, and economic cleavage between town and countryside, uh, can this book help? Can it make sense? Can it help city dwellers like you and I, and particularly myself? I don't have any relatives from the countryside. 
the elites, the coastal elites of San Francisco and New York and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Is this the book that can make them a little bit more sympathetic or sensitive to the world of people who live outside cities in the countryside, farmers? Oh, I, I hope it would help them appreciate that so-called flyover country. I'm always a little distressed on an airplane flying from one coast to the other and everybody pulls their shades down. Good God, you got 2,000 2, miles, 2,500 2, miles of beautiful country. You can see how towns are laid out. You can see where farms are laid out. You can see how this country developed. It's, it's so remarkable to take that cross-country flight, but don't pull down your darn window shade. Look at it because there is so much out there to respect. Um, I think what's changing more is technology has brought, made us more one than we've ever been before. And even as a, you know, a teenager, I knew the difference between my hometown of Fort Wayne and New York City. And but today that doesn't hold true anymore. So going back to your point, yes, Will Cather will help people appreciate the difficulties, the challenges, the successes that Antonia faced in 1880s Nebraska. I've got a title, Peter, for the show, In Defense of Flyover Country. Read Willa Cather. Is that fair? I love it. I love it. Put it up there. <laughs>